You're listening to Discovering Christmas. I'm your host, Dan Goshi. Our podcast presented by Cool 103.5. I thought for this episode we'd discuss some of the Christmas songs that we're familiar with and uh, kind of get a little bit of a, an idea of the origin of these songs and uh, kind of the, the situation in society and, and what was going on when they were written and uh, recorded. So the first song I've chosen is uh, White Christmas, written by Irving Berlin. As a songwriter, uh, Irving Berlin didn't really create a lot of complicated pieces. His work was pretty plain, pretty simple. He had kind of a sense uh, within him about how the country was feeling. What was the mood of the country? What was the mood of the people that might be listening to his music? And kind of a knack for expressing it. He was very, very well able to marry the emotion of words with a very comfortable expression uh, in melody. And so when he was writing the song, White Christmas, uh, it's, it's important to know that Irving Berlin was a Jewish man. He did not really celebrate Christmas. So he really had to reach to find a way to make that emotional connection people had with the holiday. He was able to understand the importance of the holiday to people. He had uh, recognized that people had a nostalgia for Christmas, that they often viewed Christmas Day or Christmas Eve or their Christmas celebration the same way a couple might look at a wedding. You know, they wanted everything to be just right, uh, a perfect day. The weather had to be just right, including. And so, uh, well, Irving Berlin grew up in New York City, and he knew that uh, snow had a certain emotional effect on the attitudes of people at Christmas time. It, it seemed to somehow... Uh, infuse a burst of excitement into Christmas. Snow seemed to make the holiday feel more special, more right. Uh, he knew the beauty of the snow. The he understood the anticipation of children as they looked forward to the visit from Santa Claus. And so he wrote this song uh, for a movie that was to star Bing Crosby. The title of the movie, Holiday Inn. Now, Irving Berlin didn't like the song really that much when he wrote it. He was going to rip it up and throw it away, in fact. But he thought he'd present it to Bing Crosby anyway. Bing loved it and uh, told him, don't change a thing about it. Not a note, not a word, just leave it as is. Uh, Bing Crosby himself, uh, by the way, in his career, has over 300 million record sales. And when this song was written, White Christmas, uh, it was written during World War, well, World War II had been going on. And there was a lot of division in the uh, in the United States about whether we should be involved in the war at all. Well, that debate ended when Japan attacked the United States at Pearl Harbor. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The movie, Holiday Inn, wasn't to be released until the following year. But uh, somehow, that Christmas, sensing the fear, the sadness, and the anger of Americans knowing that many American homes would be experiencing a loss in their families with the servicemen engaging in war, um, and also knowing how many servicemen would not be in their own familiar surroundings at Christmas time, Bing Crosby decided to perform White Christmas for the first time on his radio show, which was live on Christmas Day in 1941, just a couple weeks after the Pearl Harbor attack. 
Well, the phones went crazy at the studio. People demanding to have the song recorded and released. Well, uh, that happened a little bit later on. Uh, Bing Crosby didn't make much of it, uh, of the fact that people really liked the song. Uh, it was in, wasn't until May of that year, 1942, that uh, he went into the studio to record White Christmas. I guess the story goes that he only spent about 20 minutes in the studio recording White Christmas and just kind of uh, whipped through it fairly quickly. The movie Holiday Inn premiered in August of 1942. That's the movie in which White Christmas was going to be heard. The song White Christmas was already being played by radio stations and already hitting the charts. In fact, uh, in in uh, August, September, even into October, in fact, it hit number one on the charts in 1942. Some people say, hey, uh, you folks play Christmas music on the air too soon. You, 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 you push it on us. You rush it on us. Well, we go back to 1942. Bing Crosby's White Christmas made, uh, made it to number one on Halloween Day in 1942, so it had been played a while before that, and it stayed uh, at number one. It stayed there throughout all of November. It was the number one song. Throughout all of December, it was the number one song. Throughout all of January and into February, White Christmas was the number one song in the nation. It also won the Academy Award for the best song of 1942. Uh, the song charted 15 more times in the next 20 years, made it all the way to number one again in 1945 and again in 1946. That doesn't happen very often with songs that uh, our, our modern artists release. Uh, Bing Crosby filmed his, uh, his very last Christmas special, for television. He'd been doing these on the radio and then a number of years on television as well. Um, shortly before he died in 1977, he died of cancer that year. The last song he sang on his Christmas special that year was White Christmas, almost as though this wasn't going to be a goodbye for Bing Crosby, that he would still be in our thoughts at Christmas time and that his Christmas music and so much of it. Uh, is part of our Christmas celebration and that it would always be a part of our holiday gatherings. That's the story of White Christmas, written by Irving Berlin, recorded by Bing Crosby. I'm of a white Christmas. Now, the second story I want to talk about goes back a little bit further than the uh, 1940s. This one goes back uh, to about 1818. A guy by the name of Joseph Moore. He was a priest, and at the age of 25, the assistant to the pastor at St. Nicholas Church in Oberndorf, Austria. How about that? A Christmas song uh, from a, a pa associate pastor at a, at a church called St. Nicholas. Uh, Father Moore was given the assignment of organizing the music liturgies for the Christmas Eve Mass in 1818. Father Moore loved music. He was a very talented musician. Uh, I understand the story says that uh, winter was pretty harsh in in, uh, in Obendorf, uh, uh, Austria, back in uh, 1818, that uh, there was just a very, very cold, uh, extraordinarily cold weather. The snow was many feet deep, perhaps 10 feet, uh, according to, to some accounts. People were having a very difficult time heating their homes that year. Weather was so tough, a lot of the musicians that Father Moore had arranged uh, for, for the uh, Christmas Eve Mass uh, couldn't even come to choir practice. So, they, you know, they were going to kind of wing this 
as it uh, turned out. On Christmas Eve itself, December 24th, 1818, Father Moore goes to the church. It is his job to uh, to stoke up the uh, the wood stove to to get the the building warmed up, and he he does so just a couple of hours before mass uh, was supposed to st- to start. And while he was there, he thought, well, he had a little time to kill, so he uh, did some praying and he sat down uh, at the organ in the church of Saint Nicholas. To his uh, fear and and horror, uh, the organ was not working. Suddenly, it was broken. It had been temperamental. But now it was broken and absolutely would not work. Couldn't play a note on the thing. So he prayed again. Father Moore did. Prayed for guidance. How could he respond uh, to this and, and what should he do? He had a very good friend by the name of Franz Gruber, who was a school teacher, about six years older than Father Moore. So Franz Gruber was 31. He was uh, one of uh, Father Moore's very closest friends, so Father Moore ran over to his apartment, asked him if he would mind taking a look at the organ. Well, Gruber didn't know how to fix an organ, and so, uh, but he did, he did do this. Franz Gruber said, I'll tell you what I'll do. Uh, I'll play, I have a guitar. I can play the guitar. I will play that at your mass, uh, for Christmas Eve that night. Uh, and, and Father Moore says, well, you know, that's something, but a lot of the songs that we're, we're singing at, at church tonight really are not great for a choir accompanied by a guitar. There might be some things we can do, but, so he was pretty distraught about that. Really, he didn't, Father Moore didn't get a whole lot of tough assignments, uh, at the, at that young age from the, uh, from the pastor, and so this was something that he was really putting, pouring himself into. Uh, Father Moore was also a poet, and he remembered that several winters ago, he had written a little Christmas poem. He'd been uh, taking a walk on a winter's night when the inspiration came to him. So he runs back home, digs through his his uh, his things, and I think, I guess, in the bottom drawer of his dresser or something, he finds this handwritten poem that he had written several years ago, and he dashes back out into the harsh winter to uh, Franz Gruber's place and brings him the poem. As the time for Mass was getting nearer and nearer, Gruber goes ahead and uh, jots down a little melody for the poem, uh, and he set the uh, the piece for uh, two voices and guitar. And the song was shared that night at the uh, Christmas Eve Mass with whatever congregation could make it to the little church of St. Nicholas in those harsh elements. Well, neither Gruber nor Moore ever really sought to distribute the song. Father Joseph Moore told the story of uh, the Christmas Eve song to the organ repairman who came by during the following month in January. Well, the, the repairman said, "Why well, can I hear it? And so uh, Father Moore sang the song to him. And he learned the melody, the organist did, and he wrote down the, the, the lyrics. And then as he was going across uh, Europe helping churches with their with their organ, uh, he would uh, you know kind of distribute the song that way. It's a pretty song. It's a great Christmas song. You should listen to this. You should play this. And so the song became very popular in churches and was, uh, uh, was uh, sung at Christmas Eve in churches across Europe shortly thereafter. It it didn't come until the United States uh, when it was brought by an Austrian singing group in 1839, and they sang it in English instead of its original uh, German lyrics. And it became very popular very quickly in churches across the country. Several artists uh, helped to make the song popular in performances, yet uh, radio hadn't, you know, was was not uh, was either not invented yet or, or certainly not in, in uh, a household appliance and widespread uh, distribution. And so these songs, when they became popular, they became popular as uh, as being performed or heard about or the sheet music and things like that. So the song had uh, become popular, but was not a household staple at Christmas time at this point. However, 
Guess who shows up on the scene during the history of this particular song? In uh, eight in nineteen thirty nine, about hundred and twenty one years after the song was written and first performed, Bing Crosby is being asked by a Catholic charity group if he would help uh, produce uh, something that they could use to to raise money. For, uh, for a charity. They were trying to feed uh, hungry children in China, and this was an organization that worked for that. And they asked Bing Crosby if he would, if he would help out uh, with, uh, with this, uh, uh, this endeavor. So uh, Bing didn't want to make uh, um, uh, any money from a religious song, and he, didn't want to re- he wanted to sing this song. He didn't want to make any money from it because he thought it was not right to earn money from a religious song. I guess his brother convinced him you know what go ahead and and uh, and sell it and make the money for it just contribute all of the of the uh, uh, the profits to this organization that you're doing it for and he, well that's a good idea so uh, it didn't make as big of an impact on the on the on the radio charts as white christmas did some 5 uh, 3 or 4 years later but uh, it, it did make it all the way to number 7 on the billboard charts you probably already know the the history of the song and you probably have already guessed the title uh, it just probably from the fact that it was in 1818 and i mentioned joseph moore and franz gruber but the song we're talking about here was none other than silent night, silent night. Holy. the next song i want to talk about in our uh, discovering christmas with dan goshi series is uh, this one is called have yourself a merry little christmas it was written by hugh martin and ralph blaine now this was a songwriting team and they had written songs for a, a lot of different movies, for Broadway, for radio, for various artists back in the 30s and 40s. And so MGM Studios uh, hired this this uh, this songwriting team of uh, of uh, Martin and Blaine to write music for an upcoming musical called Meet Me in St. Louis. Now, these writers were highly, highly sought after, very highly respected. When you got them on board, uh, you didn't mess with them. You knew you had something good going on. So it was not common at all for an actor or an actress to enter into some sort of a conflict with these writers. You didn't do that with these guys. However, the lead actress in the film, Meet Me in St. Louis, had a major complaint about the lyrics of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. The actress... Judy Garland. Clang, clang, clang went the trolley. Ding, ding, ding went the bell. She was hired as the lead actress in this film, and she wanted this picture. This was a very important picture to her. She had made a lot of of, uh, of movies uh, sort of playing a juvenile role. She was Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, for example. And so um, she thought that this would be the movie that would show her as an adult and and uh, help her career move to that that level where she could get roles as uh, as an adult, as a lead actress who is an adult. A mature adult. And so uh, having success already in The Wizard of Oz, several other films, she needed this uh, the industry to look at her as a mature lead actress and move on from those juvenile roles she'd been playing. So when, when Garland read the lyrics to Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, she was horrified by them. Absolutely horrified. Sent it back to the writers and refused to sing it. She said no. This is far too negative. This is not, I'm not going to do this. You guys rewrite it. 
to this writing team that you don't mess with, right? Well, if you take a look at the scene in the movie where the song was to be sung, it was at a moment in the movie when Judy Garland's character and her family uh, were, were going to be moving away from St. Louis and from life as they knew it. And uh, one of the parts of life that she would be leaving is a man that she had fallen deeply in love with. This would be the last Christmas that the family would have in their home and in their community. They were going to move far away. So the lyrics actually that were written were right for the scene. They depicted that pain that she was feeling, captured the tender moment quite well for the picture. The song started out this way. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. Next year, we will be living in the past. Again, the right sentiment for the scene and for the sadness of that moment in the movie. But there was another scene that Judy Garland was concerned about, and that was the scene of the current events in society in her day. The scene of life. Now, the movie was being filmed while the United States was in the midst of World War II. Many families were experiencing Christmas without their loved ones who were serving away from home. Many families had learned their husbands, their fathers, their sons were not coming home ever, that they would never have their, their company at Christmas again. And what about those serving our country who would be exposed to the song that Garland would sing? She wanted to offer them a message of hope that they will come home for Christmas again someday. And this song seemed to give them cause for despair instead. Service personnel often consider Judy Garland's song Somewhere Over the Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz as a sort of a song offering hope. They likened their hometown, life as they knew it before the war, as being over the rainbow. And so Somewhere Over the Rainbow to them meant going back home. So Judy Garland was uh, had no intention of presenting them now with another song offering despair instead of that hope. And so she flat out refused to sing it as it is. I, I heard uh, some renditions of the story where she wrinkled it up and threw it on the floor right in front of everybody and walked out. I, I don't know if that's that's true or not. But So um, from both standpoints, really, of the argument, each side was right in their own way about the song. The lyrics did fit the mood in the, in the movie perfectly. But no, they did not fit the mood of the nation. Well, the writers very, very reluctantly rewrote the line with a more positive message of hope. Judy Garland loved the new lyrics and sang the song offering the hope that she knew the country needed. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Just imagine the popularity of this song. We all know it. We've all heard it from many different artists. If Judy Garland had not demanded a change in the lyrics. Though the song would have been perfect for that moment in the movie, would it have a life beyond that movie at all? Would any of us be familiar with this song today? Have yourself a merry little Christmas Let your heart be My last song in this uh, edition of Discovering Christmas with Dan Goshi. I want to tell you about the two writers of this uh, very popular Christmas song. Two writers. It took two of them to do it. They never knew each other. They never met. 
The song was never meant to be a Christmas song. The writer of the words was Isaac Watts, and he was born in the late 1600s in England. He died in 1748, 44 years before the other writer of the song, who came up with the music for it, Lowell Mason, was even born. Isaac Watts was a rebel, much like his father, very knowledgeable man. He knew uh, Greek and Hebrew and Latin, and uh, he also didn't care too much for the sound of church music in those days and wanted to create something that was more moving, more inspirational. And this was a certain passion that he had that led him to write over 600 hymns to be sung in churches. It was one day when he was studying Psalm 98, and he was influenced by the passages, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Let the seas resound. Let the rivers clap. The mountains shout with joy. And the whole reason for this joy in this psalm was the coming of the Lord to govern and rule the world with justice. The psalm is one that praises God for a victory. So Isaac Watts created a poem based on this psalm. British Christians did not take too keenly to the idea of rewriting the psalms. Though the poem was meant to be based on the psalms, it was not a rewriting of it, but they didn't care for the, uh, uh, they, they thought that was a bit of a too, too grave an area, I guess. So when he died, this particular work was still not very well received and, and remained only one of, uh, one of Isaac Watts' many poems. Well, then we fast forward again near the end of the 18th century when Lowell Mason was born. He was born in America. He was a musician, a, a choir director. He, he created a songbook that was uh, actually, by critics, looked at as uh, mediocre at best. Um, but, however, the, the songbook became quite popular. Mason was another um, rebellious sort of fellow who, uh, who found himself always at odds with the establishment. In fact, uh, when, he, when he couldn't fit in with, uh, with music programs that, uh, that, that, that were being run, he funded his own um, public music school program. He composed a melody. He was inspired by the songs from Handel's Messiah. The song specifically, Lift Up Your Head... And comfort ye. Were the two songs that he was inspired by when he wrote uh, this melody that we know very well. Uh, but at the time, it didn't have any words. He wrote this melody down. It had no words to go with it. And he searched and searched and searched for the right lyrics for this music. And he found them in the poetry of Isaac Watts that poem based on the 98th Psalm. So Watts, taking the inspiration of shouting with joy from Psalm 98, the various aspects of nature, the seas, the rivers, the mountains, joining into that praise, and the object of that praise, the victory of God and his rule, and then Mason marries those lyrics with the majestic and triumphant melody that, that he had written, and as he presented that, the world finally embraced this song as, as something that, that, uh, that, that is, is worthy of, of being sung and worthy of, of using even uh, in, in liturgies. Well, uh, this song was uh, neither in poem form or through the, the setting of music. It was never intended to be associated with Christmas. This was a song of victory about the rule of God based on Old Testament writings before the, the manner of the coming of Christ was widely understood. Uh, when, when you study the words of this song, 
It's a song that could be incorporated into the liturgical calendar during any of the uh, of the church's seasons, almost. And some would, would suggest that it became proper to the Christmas season simply by popular opinion and through the lyrics, even though they don't mention any incarnation or a nativity of Christ and speak nothing of the virgin birth or the star of Bethlehem or the shepherds or the wise men. Still, it somehow seems very fitting to the season of Christmas. And the music seems to have that feel of Christmas itself, the melody itself, the very season of joy. The song, Joy to the World. And that'll wrap up this edition of Discovering Christmas. I'm your host, Dan Goshi. Our podcast is presented by Cool 103.5.